If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 119. Don't panic. We're doing verses 33 through 40. No need to panic. What if I said we're going to do all of Psalm 119 this morning? There would be some benefit. I'd like to direct our focus to this particular part of the text, verses 33 through 40. Um, earlier this week, Gary Fisher uh, was kind enough to lead some of us men at a men's study we do here um, every month on, on Tuesday, and, and he led us as we started Psalm 119. He led us through the first 24 verses, and I, I found it so encouraging. I don't know if this happens, surely it happens to the other men who are tasked with preaching, I feel like I spend far more time trying to decide what to talk about than I do actually preparing to. And Tuesday, it really struck me. It, it was such an encouraging study to go through even just the first 24 verses of this psalm to remind ourselves of how much benefit we draw from the word of the Lord that I wanted to, to encourage us in that this morning. There is power and peace. There is security and comfort in the word of the Lord, in the testimonies, in the commands, in the rules of the Lord. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the book, both in the number of verses and in the number of words. Some of this, uh, I'm sure we've, we've heard many times before. Uh, it's an acrostic poem, something that, that was meant to be read aloud, even sung aloud. And it follows this pattern where there are 22 sections based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet so that every eight verses, it's using the, the first letter, the first eight verses use the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Every sentence begins with that letter. We don't see it in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, you would see that. The second section of eight verses would be the, the second letter, the Hebrew letter, uh, the Hebrew alphabet. The section we're going to look at in verses 33 through 40, this is the, the letter he. So that every sentence, every verse of this poem begins with, with that letter. What's unique about this psalm is that nearly every verse, with a few exceptions, nearly every verse uses some word to describe God's word. He uses words like laws or commandments, ways or testimonies, rules or precepts. And our English uh, translations use a variety of words. The emphasis here is that the psalmist wants us to know and appreciate and love the various elements when God speaks to his people. This psalm may appear a bit repetitive, and I'm not going to disagree with you, but I read somewhere there's a difference between redundancy and repetition. God is not redundant, but he is repetitious. 
Repetition is telling us over and over again what is necessary for us to know. Being redundant is telling us over and over again that which is not necessary. God is very repetitious with us because he loves us. We do that with our children. We repeat to them instruction we believe that they need to hear. God is repetitious. He's not redundant. Throughout this psalm, uh, I have broken it up into a variety of, of ways you could, you could categorize this psalm. It, some of these verses are promises that the psalmist makes to the Lord. For example, verse 7 I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Or verse 45, I will walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. The psalmist is saying, I'm going to do this thing. I'm promising to you, Lord, something. A few of these, very few, are written in a question or answer. In fact, we sang a song this morning. How shall the young secure their hearts? Verse 9, how, uh, my translation says, how can a young man keep his way pure? The answer is by guarding it according to your word. Some of these are statements. They are simply proclamations from the psalmist to the Lord. Uh, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is fact, the psalmist says. Here's a statement, a proclamation I'm making. Or verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And some of these are requests that the psalmist is making to God. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Or verse 18, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your word. He's, he's asking God for something. As I mentioned, there's immense value in reading through this entire psalm, and I would encourage you to do it. Perhaps after lunch today, there's time. Speak it out loud. Speak each sentence like the one here, your testimonies are my delight. Gary encouraged us, and I appreciated it. Say it multiple times, putting different emphasis on different words. Your testimonies are my delight. Your testimonies are my delight. Your testimonies are my delight. It just makes it rich when we take time and read through it. I'd encourage us to do that. This morning, let's read through verses 33 through 40. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. 
Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. What we're going to do this morning is, is take this through verse by verse, focusing on these requests. He asks God to give, to give, I'm sorry, to teach me the way of your statutes. Give me understanding. Lead me. This is a, a prayer that we ought to pray to God every day. I, I want these things, and I, I want them from you, Lord. What I'm going to do to the best of my abilities is, is go through these, these verses. I am not going to have us turn to every passage up here. And for those, perhaps my children, who are frantically trying to write them all down, I'd be happy to share the, the outline with you later. I, I would like us to turn to a couple of these as we study through it. But he asks God, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. This is the main prayer of this section. It's a prayer for spiritual enlightenment. This phrase, teach me your statutes, it occurs eight other times in this psalm, and they're listed up there. We long to be taught. I believe that God made us naturally curious. We, we want to know more than we do. We want to learn. We want to increase our knowledge. And while things like his eternal power and divine nature can be clearly understood, we're told in Romans 1, by simply looking at the creation, if we want to know his will for us, if we want to know his ways, we have to ask him to teach us, and he does through his statutes, through his word. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. This verse implies that it's more than merely a request to God for information. Lord, I want to know something. Matthew Henry says, it's teach me your statutes, not the mere words, but the way of applying them to myself. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it. God's words are not merely informative, but instructive. From the very first verses of the Bible, when God spoke, things are meant to happen. And so when God speaks to us, he expects them to produce a result. Now, an important point I want to make early in our study, you're noticing New Testament passages up there. This word, these precepts, these statutes, the gospel of John, he opens his gospel by explaining to us that that word took on flesh and dwelt among us. He said, the word became flesh in verse 14 of John 1 and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
so that when we are asking God, as this psalmist is, teach me your words, I want to know your, your will, your precepts, your truth, we're saying, I want to know Jesus. He's the manifestation of it. I want to know what he says. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's a word that's meant to be understood and acted upon. Let's turn to James chapter 1. Keep, keep a ribbon or your finger here in, in Psalm 119. But in James chapter 1, he says in uh, verse 25 of chapter 1, he's giving this, this analogy of, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to look at a mirror and immediately forget what kind of person you were. Don't, don't be that kind of person. He says in verse 25, but the one who looks into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty, the, the, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I want to know it. Teach me, O Lord, so that I will keep it. So it's a request that we're making to God, but this verse is also a promise that we're making it to God. I'm going to keep it to the end. I'm not going to get halfway done with this race and say, I, I can't do any more. No, I, I'm going to look at these statutes. I want God to teach me these things, and then I will hold fast. That's the promise this author and, and we should be making to God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The study that we're having through 1 Corinthians out here in the auditorium um, Mike and I are prepping to teach 2 Corinthians. There's this temptation to be like, there's this really good part later on, and we want to jump ahead, and there's, there's good and value in every chapter we're studying. There's this great section in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul says, Now I will remind you, O brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This was a common admonition from Paul. The things you heard from me, the things I presented to you, hang on. Hang on to them. Make the promise to God that you will keep them to the end. And then he asks God in verse 34, back in Psalm 119, give me understanding. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. This is an appeal to God for understanding, for clarity, for, for comprehension. It should come as no surprise to us that when an all-knowing God who has infinite knowledge communicates to us as limited human beings, sometimes his words are hard to understand. Don't misunderstand me. I believe that the gospel message is pretty simple. But there are passages, even Peter acknowledges this, in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he's talking about Paul's writings. Let's, let's read what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's finishing up this letter, and he says in verse 15, 
Uh, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So Paul had the authority by the Holy Spirit to speak the words of Christ. That authority was given to him. That wisdom was given to him. It says, as he does in all of his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, some of these things in them that are hard, he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. He's, he's pretty upfront about it. Look, sometimes Paul has written things to us and it, it's hard to understand. An important point to make here is that Peter equates Paul's writings with the other scriptures. He puts them on level plane. And he says, sometimes they're hard to understand. They, they require a, a deeper understanding. And so the psalmist in, in verse 34 is begging God for that. Uh, I, I don't understand this all the time. Help me to understand. The good news The gospel is full of good news. One of the elements of the good news is that God does not say, figure it out. I know it's tough. You're going to have to chew on it. Just hang in there. No, the good news in James chapter 1 and verse 5 says that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Uh, One of the points that I appreciated about what what Jesse said uh, Wednesday night was that when we ask God for understanding, he is not stingy. He's not waiting with this rationed cup of his understanding to, this is about as much as I think you can handle. God has an ocean ready to give us. He wants us to understand. He, he doesn't want to be confusing to us. He's not the author of confusion. And this wisdom, this understanding, comes from the unchanging word that he's given us. Let's get back into it. Let's read it again. Let's read some of the other things that maybe that author wrote. I'm having trouble understanding what Paul meant here. What? How did he talk about it in his other letter? I'm having, underst- uh, I'm having trouble understanding what Jesus meant when he said that. Well, he's actually quoting an Old Testament passage. So I'm going to go over there, and what did it mean there? We dig back into it, and God is ready to flood us with his wisdom. And the psalmist explains to God that the reason for his request, give me understanding, he asks, so that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. From the very beginning, God has required heartfelt obedience. He doesn't want us just going through the motions. He doesn't want us just doing the things. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain did the things. Cain offered a sacrifice. And as far as I can tell, it looked very similar to a sacrifice that God ended up commanding later in the law of Moses. He did the thing. But Hebrews 11 seems to indicate that he he lacked the faith when he did the thing. On the flip side, David had the fervor and the zeal in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
He wanted to do, he felt in his heart that this was the thing to do when he moved the ark of God on a cart. He had heartfelt action, but it wasn't obeying the instruction. We need both. Someone once said, true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and the marrow of biblical worship. God is pleased when we do both. But he's displeased if we give him only one or the other. Paul gives thanks to God in in Romans chapter 6. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 17, Paul thanks God and says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. You didn't act like robots. You didn't hear the information and I must obey. You wanted to do this. And that's the desire that this psalmist has. He's asking God, help me understand so that I can do what you want me to do, and I can do it with with all of me, with all of my feeling. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in this. This one particularly uh, jumped out to me. The prophet Jeremiah understood, he says so in Jeremiah 10, 23, that we need someone to lead us. He says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Uh, We're not capable. We might be able to figure out the right path from time to time, but if that's all we're leaning on is our own understanding, we are going to veer off course. It's not within us to figure it out. We need God to lead us. We are sheep that need a shepherd. But the world says, follow your dreams. You know, you just need to follow your own path. But the righteous person pleads to God, lead me. Uh, I need your direction. And lead me where? In the path of your commandments. There's this passage in in Psalm 34, I'm sorry, Psalm 37 in verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I don't know about you all, there was a time when I was single, wishing that I wasn't, and I read passages like this and thought, okay, all I have to do is love God more, and he's going to give me the things that I want specifically a spouse. Is that really what it's saying there? Delight yourself also in the Lord. He's the thing I want. 
He's my delight. And what is he going to do for me? He's going to give me the thing that I want. He's going to give me my delight. He's going to give me him. So that if I'm spending time, if I'm spending time changing my thinking so that I want the things he wants and I'm willing to put away the things that I want, God's going to give me what I desire. How do we see God's commandments? I actually really appreciate, Mike, thank you, the, the song that we sang before the lesson. Lord, you are a a shield about me. What's a shield meant to do? A shield is that thing that protects us from harm. How do we view God's laws? Do we view them as a shield? Or do we view them as a prison? Do we view them as a path or do we view them as a, as a roadblock? I can't do that. I can't go there. Did your peers ever make statements like this? And I'm sorry, young people, they keep doing it even when you get to be an adult. They'll say things like, oh, you're a Christian. Does that mean that you can't fill in the blank? Oh, you go to church, that must mean that you're not allowed to X, Y, Z. I get it. I've been there. And it hurts. You, you, don't, you don't like it when, when people look at you and go, oh, you're the people who can't go there or do that. But if we're only looking at God's instructions as the list of things we're not allowed to do, I would encourage that we get a new perspective. In fact, this was one of the things about Gary's lesson, Gary's study with us on Tuesday that really helped. God's commandments only feel restrictive to us when deep down we actually wish we could do the thing. I hope that makes sense. When we are led by God to learn to delight in the things that God delights in, we no longer feel restricted by his commandments, we feel protected. We'll talk about this a little bit more. When God gave the restrictive commandment to Adam and Eve in the garden, was he trying to keep them from something good? No, he, he was trying to protect them. He knew that if they took that thing that they wanted, they, they would be doomed. So he had to put a measure down and say, this far and no farther. Not because I hate you, not because there's something good on the other side, and I just don't want you to have that. That's what Satan was trying to get them to believe. God knows that if you eat of it, you'll get to be like him. He's trying to keep you from that. No, no. God knew that if they ate it, they would die. And the loving father said, I, I don't want that for my kids. 
I've got to put this thing here because they don't know any better. They're going to try to go over there, and I don't, I don't want to see them hurt. So a helpful example was, was offered when we studied together on Tuesday. When you walk into a store, when you walk into a store, does your mind automatically start crafting a, a checklist of things you're supposed to do or not do in the store? For example, I walk into the store and I immediately see the checklist, while you're here, don't kill anybody. You are not allowed to kill anybody. While you're here, don't steal anything. While you're here, maybe there's a positive checklist. Treat people with respect. Act with integrity. I don't know about you. I, think it's, I hope it's fair to say that none of you walk in and go, do not kill anybody while I'm in here today. Does your brain see the checklist? I, I don't think so. Why? Is that a good rule to follow? Yes. <laughs> don't kill anybody. But I don't see the checklist. Why? Because if I am putting on the character of God, if I am emulating God, if I am acting as Christ would act... Christ doesn't want to do any of those things. God isn't like that. God doesn't have to keep running through his mind the checklist. It's still there, but we don't even see it because it's, second na- it's become second nature to us. I know that when I interact with other human beings, the character of Christ says, treat them as you would want to be treated. Love them the way I've loved you. When they wrong you, forgive them as I have forgiven you. And I don't view that as a, am I doing the, I'm just, that's the way Christ lives. That's his nature. And that should be mine. But we need leading, right? We need God to say, let me remind you what my character is like. Let me remind you what pleases me. And eventually we... We won't even think of them as restrictive things. We'll just think of them as this is, this is who I'm meant to be because this is who God is. Verse 36, he asks God, and this is the, the title of the lesson. I, I think it really does, pun intended, get to the heart of what he's asking, where he asks God, incline my heart to your testimonies. Here's another catchphrase of the world. Disney's the worst offender at it. Follow your heart. And it sounds so good. Like, why wouldn't we? Well, if you've been in our First Corinthians class, the last couple of classes, is that the thing that should lead us? It feels good to me. I feel emotionally good about the thing, and so I'm going to follow that thing. No, no, the psalmist realized... The psalmist realized what Jeremiah realized in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, he says, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a rhetorical question. Who can understand it? None of us, certainly. This thing 
our heart, our conscience can be very valuable. In fact, it's God-given, but it can lead us in ways that, that God does not intend for us to go. How do I know? How do I know that if I feel good about something, it's the right thing to do? It's because I've inclined my heart to God's testimonies. And if I know these are the things that God wants from me, these are the things that God does, this is how God acts, my heart will tell me this is the right way. We have to be cautious. We have to be careful. And we talked about this in class this morning. Our hearts can become hardened. We see it in Pharaoh as we're following our, our, our daily Bible reading, right? Pharaoh had knowledge. He had firsthand knowledge. It was very clear. And yet his heart was telling him, nope, I don't want this. This isn't good to let those people go. Our hearts can become dull, the scriptures say. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 say, sometimes our hearts can become darkened. Sometimes our hearts assume that something is light when it is not. Sometimes our hearts don't see clearly because we've, we've put something in front of it and, and darkened our vision. Incline my heart, Lord, to your testimonies. Why? He says, not for selfish gains. And I think maybe a cursory reading says, so that I don't get greedy, perhaps. But really, all sin at its core is selfishness, isn't it? I want what I want, and I'm going to do the thing. How many of us have sinned and, and we actually didn't actually want to do the thing? But if we've inclined our heart to the testimonies of God, and God throughout Scripture, I should have included some more passages here, tell us constantly to, to rid ourselves of ourselves. Selfless was the life of Christ. He emptied himself Philippians 2. He, he didn't put on anything that said, I'm going to get my own. He, he put that all away and said in Luke 22 and verse 42, not my will, but yours be done. I need to train my heart through his testimonies to, to not want what I want, but want what he does. And then he says in verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And I believe that an application here could be made that we need to, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 33 and, and verse 15, we need to shut our eyes from looking on evil. There are some things that we do not need to be looking at. It's shameful, Paul says, to even speak of the things they do in the darkness. I think an application here could be made for that. It also made me think of this passage in, in Job 31 and verse 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes, he says, not to look lustfully uh, at, a, at another. 
But I think there's, there's an even broader application here when the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Throughout this psalm, he's been comparing the words of the Lord to everything else. And compared to the words of the Lord, the testimonies and the precepts, everything else is worthless. And so he says, turn my eyes from everything else. I, I don't need to be focusing and, and thinking on those things. In fact, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Paul came to this very same conclusion. Not that those things are in and of themselves inherently evil, but when we compare them to the things of Christ, they, they suddenly lose their value. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and, and starting in verse 7, he says, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You remember the parable of Jesus where he said this man found a treasure in a field and what was he willing to do? He was willing to sell everything because that treasure was more valuable than it. Compared to that thing, everything he previously owned was worthless. And so we're asking, the psalmist is asking, we should be asking, Lord, turn my eyes from those things. It's really hard in our, in our time. I, I don't know that it's any harder in our generation than it was in previous generations. But we have devices in our pockets that tell us what we need. We need a new device in our pocket, perhaps. Isn't this cool? Don't you want this? A bigger house, of the, a different job. Don't. And the world is telling us, this is value, this is value. Go after these things. You want these things, don't you? Do you want to supersize it? But compared to the word, do I see those things for what they really are? They are worthless. And so, you'll have to decide for yourself, what practical application can you make in your home? When I have the choice between X, Y, Z and committed time to the word, what am I more inclined to choose? And I, <laughs> I've got to make the same evaluation. At the end of the day, when the kids are asleep and I am wiped out, is my first thought, Let's sit down and open this thing up. Maybe it should be. Why? Why would I want to turn my eyes to God's things and not those things? Because these things give us life. Some translations here say it's actually another request. Revive me, he asks. Because without God, when I have sin in my life, I'm dead. Oh, it sucks the life out of me. But God, I'm asking you, fill me back up again. Revive me. Give me that energy. That's the thing that's going to truly give me life again. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, 
For the wages of sin is death. And that's a hard statement. It's a true statement. But the good news is he keeps going on. But the gift of God, his word, Jesus manifested, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's life that won't end. Oh, it's everything we need. It'll fill us right back up because the world is trying to suck it out of us. And then he makes a request in 38. He asks God to confirm to your servant your promise. Now, a whole series of sermons could be done on the beautiful and bountiful promises of God, and that's a worthwhile study. There are too many, there are too many to count. But I think the first three chapters of Ephesians does a masterful job of describing at least some of those. Paul says, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I mean, he, he actually just covers it all right there. Everything you could want spiritually, Christ has blessed us with. That's a promise. But he goes on. He says, he chose us. He adopted us. In him we have redemption through his blood, as we talked about this morning. We have the forgiveness of our sins according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished on us. No rationed cup of grace here. He lavished that grace on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And that's just three verses of the first chapter of Ephesians. Go read the first three chapters. What has God promised? Everything we could ever want. In Christ, he's given it to us. It's ours for the taking. The world, on the other hand, its promises are empty. It offers us things that offer satisfaction, usually for a very, very brief period of time. I'm going to go back to the device in our pockets. I was talking to, to Barry Britnell and Stuart Peck uh, a few days ago about what what version of the device do you have in your pocket? And I was mocking them, playfully, but I was mocking them for the fact that Barry, he had an iPhone 11 in his pocket. Like, how lame. Come on, Barry, keep up with us. Three years from now, someone's going to be mocking me for this ridiculous device I have in my pocket. Because the promise of, this is the best, lasts until Apple does another announcement saying, no, this is the best. And that's the world. That's what Satan offers to us. He, he can't give us anything that truly satisfies for any period of time. He keeps trying, but he's, he's got nothing. God is the one who has these full, complete, eternal promises. There's a song that we sing uh, written by Stephen Rouse, the promise of sin is deceiving. It's, it's a lie. Satan offered to Adam and Eve something. You'll have knowledge, he said. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And they did. He forgot to mention. He intentionally left out the part where they would be doomed without further interaction from God. 
God, on the other hand, never fails in his promises. He is trustworthy. We can count on him. And so if he says, when you sin, I am gracious and merciful to you and I will forgive you your sins, I'm not even going to remember them anymore. Let me further demonstrate it to you, he says. As far as the east is from the west, that's what I'm going to do to them. Count on it. And so if we come to God and we repent of those sins, he is not going to bring them back up again. I don't have to feel guilty about those things anymore. That's a promise. And there may be times where we lose sight of his promises. We, we forget. May we ask things like this. I, I don't believe that this was a, a presumptuous re- request of the psalmist. He's simply asking God, confirm to your servant, remind me again. Reaffirm to me what, what you've said you'll do for me. I, I need to be reminded. Sometimes I forget. And, and the peace and the joy and the security that we get when we are reminded, you know what? Jesus covered your sins. He, he's got you. And if you continue to, to come at him with that humble spirit, he will take care of you. If you repent, he'll forgive And then he says in verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. This is is a frequent um, topic throughout this psalm, this reproach. Um, And and there are a couple ways we could read it. Perhaps the reproach is the disgrace that we feel when we violate his commands. Uh, Possibly, I feel reproach when I haven't followed the commands. I think I think based on the context, how he uses it in other places in this psalm, it's the reproach that we receive from sinful people. Oh, you're one of those people. Or maybe it's even more blatant. God is not going to help you. You've put your faith in, yeah, God is, God is not as big as you make him out to be. And he's saying, turn, turn away that reproach. I dread it. I fear it. I don't want it. And, and we're asking God to turn those things away. Make them not hurt me. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 4 and 5, with respect to this, this hope of the gospel, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He said, don't be bothered. Don't, don't worry about what the sinful world may say about you when you commit yourself to me. I got you. Don't, don't worry. They'll give, an, they'll give an account. I'll take care of them, but you don't, don't concern yourself. Why? For your rules are good. And again, I think it goes back to the garden. Satan wanted Adam and Eve to believe that the rule was bad. It, it wasn't good for you. He's trying to keep good from you. That's why he's restricting you. But his rules are, are good. He wants what's best for us. God loves us. He wants deeply as any father would, to save us from harm. 
kids, don't play out in the street. Oh, dad. Or how about when I was a kid? <laughs> we had these rebar poles, <laughs> and we played war in the backyard, and we chuck them at each other. And we were chucking them until one of them ended up going through the foot of my brother into the ground. Don't play with those anymore. Oh, Dad, your rules are so restrictive. No, they just didn't want to have to take another trip to the hospital. We were harming ourselves, so rules were given to protect us. It was Kurt, if you guys are curious. <laughs> Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. His foot was okay, don't worry. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says that, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 11. He said, take my yoke upon you, uh, upon you. A yoke, we don't see those so much anymore, but that's a heavy wooden thing that constrains the necks of two animals together. And he says, put that on you, but don't worry. My yoke is easy. And my burden, it's light. His commands are not burdensome. When you compare his rules to what the world offers to us and the crushing weight of guilt and sin, man, his, his commands are, are light. And that's the, that's the promise that Jesus offers. And so he makes a statement in this final verse. Behold, I long for your precepts, in your righteousness, give me life. Revive me. I, I want these things, we tell to God. I long for them as the, peer, as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longs after you. Why? Because his righteous ways, that's, that's what righteousness means. His righteous ways give me life. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And Jesus told us in John 14, in verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and why would we look anywhere else? Jesus, Jesus gives us life. We want to be revived. And Jesus says that he's the one to offer that to us. Peter boldly proclaimed in Acts chapter 4 that there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus, that's the power that's going to save us. Because he is the word in flesh. 
And if we want him, if we desire him, as the psalmist is saying, we're going to submit to him. We're going we're to obey the words that he says because he gives us life. We'll close with this passage. Let's turn to John chapter 10. The whole chapter is, is such an encouraging passage. Jesus is our shepherd. He's not going to abandon us. He's not going to be frightened away when harm uh, comes upon his sheep. No, he's, he's the good shepherd. He's going to provide for us and give us what we need. And he says in verse 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm not going to skimp on you, Jesus says. I'm going to give you more than you ever could ask for. I'm going to do that. Jesus offers to do that for all of us. So may we all have, a, have the spirit of this psalmist daily requesting these things of God. Pray these things to him. Ask him for these things. And then enjoy the blessings that come when we submit to, to God's word. Jesus, the, the word, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus invites you this morning. Jesus invites you to know him, to learn from him, to take his yoke upon you because he is willing to give you life and abundantly. He invites you to put him on in the waters of baptism. And if there's any need that, we, that you have that, that we can help, um, we'd offer that invitation to you as we stand and as we sing.